Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 9, Should Everyone Go Gluten-Free? Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. Today we're talking with Dr. Michael Smith about a very sticky subject. <laughs> I just had to say that. Gluten. <laughs> the evil, evil gluten. Or is it? Let's talk to Michael today about that. If you're first, if this is your first time listening into Fusion Health Radio, uh, Michael, do you want to give people a synopsis about who you are and what we're all about? Sure. Uh, so I practice integrative medicine, uh, which is a combination of the leading edge sciences of functional medicine and nutritional medicine with the ancient and vast experience um, and wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, I also do kind of a clinical counseling thing with people. Uh, I'm an author. I've got a book. Um, I fallen in love with podcasting. This is our ninth episode, and it's really, really fun. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Anthony. It's been and hopefully will be really, really fun for a long time. Yeah, I'm uh, definitely learning a lot. My name's, uh, as I said, Anthony Santa, and I am a health seeker, uh, a big fan of the way Michael sees health and how he's helped me over the past couple of years, and a podcast fan as well. So we teamed up, and here we have Health Fusion Radio. As I said, the Health, Lifestyle, and Mindset podcast. Today we're talking about gluten. Um, what about it? Well, if you haven't heard, there's a whole gluten-free industry that's making bazillions of dollars right now. I've, I don't think I've been in, in well, outside of gas stations, any kind of store that doesn't have a big sign, you know, this is gluten-free, this is, uh, you know, <clears throat> a thing. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting trend. My concern with the trend is that what we end up doing is replacing a, a fairly dangerous food with a whole bunch of other dangerous food instead of getting people to choose less dangerous food. So on my own part, I've had my issues with uh, gluten and bread and all kinds of wonderfully delicious, yummy things over the years, um, and uh, have noticed this whole gluten-free trend, if you will. Uh, the Wheat Belly book, I think, is probably something that kicked it all off a couple of years ago. Um, there's another one called Grain Brain. Uh, and for the sake of our, our listeners here, Michael's nodding his head. <laughs> he knows what I'm talking about. Um, and I see things on packaging. I see things that are labeled gluten-free. Uh, I don't know, for lack of a, a, an example, an actual example, like bottles of water that are, <laughs> that are labeled gluten-free. And it just makes me think, this is a fad. People are just taking this whole idea uh, and running with it. But are they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's... it's uh I think it's like a, a nice diagnostic thing around the psychology of our culture. And I don't want to go too far into that because we've got lots to talk about that will really actually help people. But um, our scarcity greed mindset and our willingness to do anything we can to make money fast, especially the people who are really good at it because they don't seem to want to stop no matter what they do, um, is leaving people with less actual... Uh, helpful responses to things you know so again if uh, wheat is bad for you and for many people that's true eating things that are just a few molecules away from wheat 
uh, that are also bad for you isn't helping people. So the gluten-free industry isn't helping people in the sense of what you could be putting in packages that we call food. Mm. So um, maybe you should uh, take, just take a step back then and what is the whole idea around gluten sensitivity? So, you know, statistics are fun <clears throat> and I don't think I'm going to get too pushy with them, but if you go back, uh, you know, back in the, say the 50s and stuff when they were actually getting to the place where they could really uh, consistently uh, diagnose celiac disease, it, it was, you know, I think around 1 in 2,500 and a couple of, maybe a decade or two later, it was like 1 in 1,200. You know, and maybe because the testing got better or the fact that most of the symptoms of gluten intolerance or celiac aren't actually in your gut. You know, clinicians are like, oh, you have psoriasis. Let's just check to see if you have celiac. Oh, you're, you're having, you know, you know, depression and then mania and then, you know, psychotic breaks. So maybe you have a gluten problem. And again, this, you know, until clinicians realize, you know, the, the commonality of things, the statistics, you know, are always going to be based on uh, the, the few things we've often focused on with, with celiac. Uh, so, you know, now it's one in 100 people. Well, technically, I think it's one in 112, you know. So we've gone from one in 2,500 people to one in 112 in the, in the space of 50, 60 years. And that's not just because of better testing, right? That's because the way we've uh, modified the, the, the actual structure of the grain wheat uh, and, and other grains has made the gluten in it uh, way, way more potent, as well as, unfortunately, the, the, the thing we call glycophosphate, which is uh, sort of the Monsanto uh, breed grains that are uh, pesticide tolerant, um, actually is bad, <laughs> so bad. <laughs> so, 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 so let me just speak to that for a second. I have read, so my radar's up around gluten, mm -hmm. has been forever, even before I even knew what gluten was. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm 47 years old, so when I talk about gluten being a fad <laughs> and seeing gluten-free water, that kind of pisses me off a little bit because it's like, wait a minute, I've been paying attention to not eating bread for years, and all of a sudden you're telling me there's a whole bunch of cutesy things around it. I read that um, people in Europe don't suffer as much gluten sensitivity, celiac or otherwise, because of the way they grow their wheat there is different mm -hmm. than in North America because of Monsanto's pesticide use, glycosphate phosphate and that sort of stuff. That's what people are really reacting to. Uh, well, that, that's been the, the kind of, uh, I don't know, just that weird elephant in the room, which is, you know, is it gluten? Is it glycophosphate? Is it the fact that we've increased the actual amount of gluten per cup of flour uh, to make flour more, have a more pleasant mouthfeel, right? So there's all these things that are uh, going on. I mean, simply, you know, and again, the podcast being titled should everyone go gluten-free for me it says yeah just as a, a social statement that living off grains as your staple food is just a bad idea and why would you say that because of the way gl gluten or grains affect people today or is that something more to do with you know uh, a better way of eating i would say it's definitely a better way of eating just from a you know a nutrient molecule kind of point of view from an evolutionary perspective our species has never tried to survive off of uh, a flour-based food at every meal every day every month for years uh, uh, grains are uh, I don't know, made by mother nature to be able to get through the digestive tract of mammals intact to grow up in our poo which gives them five different 
chemical irritants um, that can have different kinds of damage to our body. So I would just say grains in general aren't really uh, uh, health, health food. I mean, you look at a grain, uh, say, you know, whole grain or something like that. Um, it has more nutrients in it, but it also has more anti-nutrients in it because it's designed by Mother Nature to basically not be digestible. So, you know, we can mill it down into flour and do all these things, but we're still eating a food that has the chemicals in it that can cause problems, as well as a lot of starch that feed the bacteria in your gut that cause all these secondary problems. I mean, you're eating a lot of starch, that turns into sugar, that's going to make you fat, it's going to, you know, predict diabetes or Alzheimer's or other things. So my thing is, you know, gluten isn't really the thing, it's grains. But I really would, I mean, the, the idea with this podcast is to just pry open the whole gluten thing and walk people through what exactly is going on uh, so that you can decide as a listener yourself if just going gluten-free is enough. And if you do do that, yay, because, you know, you're having less of all things that it can do to you, right? It's not doing those bad things to you. And then you may make the, the leap to go grain-free. But even if you just go gluten-free, you're still saying as a, a participant in our, in our economy, or what people like to call consumers, that you want better food. So the idea of gluten-free foods being um, healthy, and I'm doing air quotes around the word healthy, <laughs> uh, makes me think, uh, what's the sort of history? Like, do, do, do you have a sense or do you have a, an understanding of what um, grains have been like in our diet over the years? And has, you know, since the 1950s, have we just been eating more bread? Absolutely. And it's, it's not just that we eat more bread, it's that we eat less of everything else. Hmm. I mean, funny thing, if, if you eat more fat, then you can get away with more carbohydrates. But now we're doing these low-fat diets, and you've got to eat something, right? And we, we, you know, I think intuitively just decide, well, I can't just eat meat all of the time. And, well, some people do, but... Uh, and for whatever reason, most people are allergic to vegetables, psychologically anyway, <laughs> in the sense of, oh, you know... Uh, broccoli, yum. <laughs> you know, so we all just have more pasta, more bread, more muffin croissant. You know, uh, you know, it's just. I mean, who nowadays it's normal to go and have a cup of coffee, probably with you know sugar in it of some kind, and then that yellow muffin or you know a bread thing, and that's just like okay. You know, if we take that kind of little breakfast thing and had a bunch of butter on it or a big slice of cheese or something like that, it would do less harm to us because then we're probably not going to have a second muffin because we're we've been satiated by the fat. So, yeah, and again, if you look historically in terms of human, human evolution, um, you have to be in a very temperate climate to grow agricultural food, and that's, like, rare. If you go back to the podcast, I think it was, um, you know, the three healthiest diets on Earth, um, you know, and we talk about glaciation versus, versus temperate periods. It's, it's like, maybe 20% of our evolutionary history over millions of years has had a temperate enough uh, climate to do, you know, consistent successful agriculture and obviously nowadays with you know industrial machines and and packaging and storing and shipping you know it's in your face all day every day so it's almost like we have we don't have a choice to accept eat all the stuff because that's what people are putting on the shelves in stores Hmm. so again the more we start shopping for other things the more stores are going to make more shelves for those things because that's what stores want to do they want to sell us what we want to buy so we kind of have to vote with our you know our shopping dollars so gluten's so pervasive in our diets, in our, uh, you know, modern North American sad diet, standard American diet, crackers and breads and pizzas and pastas and all that sort of stuff. But what exactly is a gluten or 
I mean, people are all up in arms about gluten, but most people don't even know what gluten is. So yeah, gluten doesn't actually exist <laughs> in, in the sense that it, it by itself is a thing. So um, what I'd ask anyone to do is to take both of your hands and make a little circle. And that's going to be called what we call um, a prolamine. And it's a specific kind of molecule. Now, um, gluten is the word we use for prolamines because they're very sticky and stretchy. Uh, and they're made of uh, a protein of some kind and what's called an agglutinin, which is uh, another kind of amino acid that's more complicated. So as you eat things that have prolamines in them, and that's every grain on earth, but we'll stick with wheat. Uh, it has to fall apart before you can absorb the, the component parts. So you've eaten some bread, sorry, <laughs> and you're digesting the bread, and as the prolamine comes apart, so I'm going to ask you to take your hands and separate them. Um, mm -hmm. Now you have the protein in wheat, uh, or in gluten, that we call gliadin. You have this wheat agglutinin, which by itself is... Uh, a fairly dangerous molecule and in the separation process of, of the prolamine going from the circle to two half moons if you will you produce something called zonulin now that's just a fun name because it can sound like something from a science fiction movie but <laughs> the um, zonulins are coming to attack <laughs> captain <laughs> yeah and that's actually what's happening so zonulin as a molecule is very stressful to the mucous membrane of your small intestine and your small intestines um, so I guess we're using our hands to learn today. So if you were to take both your hands up as if you were going to high-five somebody and then bring them together so your thumbs are touching, where your thumbs are touching is called a tight junction. And your fingers represent what are called uh, the microvilli, which are the little sort of uh, cactus-like structures that reach into the space of your food and try and absorb what they can and what they need. Now, if you've got zonulin falling out of the sky onto your little hands here, they break the bond between your thumbs. And now your thumbs pry apart and your food can now not, it doesn't have to fall into the spaces between your fingers to be discerned as food or waste or be broken down to something that you can, you want to put in your bloodstream. Now you've got things falling between the space of your hands through that tight junction into your bloodstream. Now, this is meant to be a, a clean radio show, so I don't know how much swearing we're allowed to do, but we're going to have one. This basically means you're shitting into your blood. Eating bread the digestion process, how it breaks down, how that interacts with your gut wall yeah. is akin to what you just said, shitting into your blood. Mm -hmm. And that's what gluten is. Uh, well, that's what we call gluten, which again, isn't actually a thing. Okay. We'll actually, the initial harm is the zonulin breaking the tight junctions. Now that harm, besides the visual image of pooping into your blood, uh, there's proteins that are in your digestive system that haven't been broken down into amino acids yet. And if a protein, uh, in the sense of a whole thing, falls into your bloodstream, your immune system is going to attack it as if it's a virus. Because the only thing that should be in your bloodstream are amino acids, little tiny, tiny protein chunks. So again, a, a whole protein gets in, and in this case it would be gliadin from wheat. Um, it gets into your bloodstream, and now your immune system is going to attack the gliadin as if it's a virus. Interestingly enough, the surface membrane of your thyroid gland is made of something that looks very much like gliadin. So now we're seeing this, uh, you know, epidemic of thyroid problems, as well as other secondary uh, immune system inflammatory problems, because 
not only is your immune system attacking gliadin and anything that looks like it, it could be attacking any other protein that you're getting into your bloodstream. They could look like your elbow. They could look like your pancreas. They could look like all kinds of other things. And this is what we classically call autoimmune disease, where your immune system is now attacking um, things in your body that are you. So I've just eaten some bread, and it's in my gut, in my digestive tract or whatever it is, and that protein disaster <laughs> is falling through uh, the cracks in my gut. Um, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but that sounds like leaky gut. Yeah, is that that's what we call a leaky gut. Okay. Yeah. Porous so, bowel. <laughs> um, how come that doesn't happen to everyone, though? Or does it? Uh, it does somewhat, yeah. So even if you're not celiac, you still have that shitting into your blood? Uh, it's still causing some damage to your, your gut, but some people's immune system... Uh, is either sluggish or resilient uh, or not triggered enough to produce an actual disease. But over time, it's going to be a factor in that disease. So uh, another statistic is around uh, people with um, autism. You know, you take kids who are autistic off of wheat, 100% of them will improve across what we call the DSM or the sort of psychiatric model of how to assess the spectrum of autism. So it isn't really a black or white conversation, you know, in the sense that you are, you're either celiac or not. We have this other big basket of people we call uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity patients. Uh, and, and the number of those people is, uh, I mean, I'd probably say one out of 10 people is gonna have that to some degree. And again, the symptoms are rarely gonna start in your gut. You know, they're almost always gonna be uh, inflammatory, neurological, and you know, on your skin or something like that. Yeah, I, I know um, from personal experience, uh, eating bread and that sort of stuff, I've got scars on my fingers and knuckles from where uh, my skin has sort of blistered up, psoriasis, how it's healed up over the years. Um, yeah, I mean, gluten intolerance for me was never about um, digestion. <laughs> it was always about, I'm so damn itchy right now, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> yeah, right. um, I'm not laughing at that, I'm just laughing at the, I don't know, just a sense of humility and compassion around how much you know we all just have to accept as a culture that we're just barely beginning to understand how to understand health in the modern world. So you, you said something, uh, we labeled it as leaky gut. Mm -hmm. uh, that's certainly something that's related to gluten intolerance in some way. Um, you said autism in there. That's some pretty big um, uh, medical, what's the word for it? Relevance, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know that, that that's some pretty big medical re relevance, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it sounds like it's got so much more that it can actually do that's not good. Yeah, it's it's bad, really bad. So I'll just take the the understanding we have thus far that proteins break apart, they produce zonulin, zonulin breaks down your gut, that creates leaky gut. Now your immune system's freaking out, and that's that's just honestly the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's an obviously scary tip, and it's the you know thing that looks like it's going to hurt you. But um, when you're eating a lot of grains, and again, we'll stay with wheat, you're eating a lot of what's called amylopectin, which is the starch in the the grains, which you know the the grains store as a kind of really dense sugar uh, to fuel their growth once they sprout and hopefully get to grow up and you know reach for the sky, in in the good way of reaching for the sky, <laughs> and uh, when you're eating constant amounts of this really really dense packed starch, um, 
you can't digest it as fast as it's moving through your, your bowels, right? And that means it's going to get into your colon, your large intestine, uh, without being digested. Now, the kind of yeasts and funguses and bacteria and other things uh, that naturally live as microorganisms in your colon, and they're meant to be there, they're just not to meant to get like their hands on usable sugar. Right. So now they're actually having all these uh, big overgrowths. The first thing we see is a candida overgrowth, which there's a yeast. It gets to a certain degree of overgrowth and out competing its friends, it becomes a fungus. And that can go anywhere in your body. Uh, this might be, I don't know, less than, I don't know, palatable for some people or something. But I mean, most women that get chronic yeast infections actually have a fungal infection. The yeast is a secondary thing that gets tr triggered by uh, sexual intercourse or excessive sugar or alcohol or other, other things. You know, but these funguses can be everywhere. And that creates the condition for the bacteria in your large intestine to crawl past your ileocecal valve, which is the thing that separates your large and small intestine. And now you end up with what's called SIBO, and that's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that's like 50 times more tricky and complicated and gradual in the sense of figuring it out and fixing it than a simple candida overgrowth. And I always like to make the kind of cute joke, oh, candida, that's so 1980s, you should wait till you get SIBO, you know. And if you get the candida overgrowth as a fungus, then you can have what's called SIFO, which is small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And again, once you have critters in your small intestine, right below your stomach, gobbling up things like, you know, starches and sugars, you don't have a chance in, in heck of, of stopping them from doing that because they're supposed to be way lower and in way uh, lower population concentrations in your body. And and again, the symptoms are, you know, statistically somewhat around digestion at that point, but for the most part, it's psychological in the sense of sleep, mood, um, you know, patience or anger or... Um, obviously depression, anxiety, you know, and, and things like that. And, you know, you get, you know, people with, are having mostly psychological, neurological phenomena and or skin, joint, inflammation things, and you start really taking apart uh, and trying to repair the bacterial uh, populations and proportions in your gut. All of a sudden, people that are, you know, thinking they need to be on an antidepressant for life or something, you're like, oh, I'm actually fine. It's not always that easy. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, if you have a leaky gut, you are more prone to having what's called a leaky brain. Leaky gut, leaky brain. Yeah. So you know you've got that membrane around your gut, you know the mucous membrane that protects you from what's inside the tube of your gut. Then you've got the blood-brain barrier, which is this really like precise membrane that only allows very specific molecules into your brain. So hang on a sec. If um I'm going to take a, a stab at this. If I've got stuff that's getting into my uh, bloodstream, basically, as you said it before, shitting into my blood, mm -hmm. um, whatever zonulins are getting into my blood, and that blood gets into um, my bloodstream, eventually it's going to end up around my brain, mm -hmm. and it has the same sort of effect up there? Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just sort of the beginning of, of, of the, the connection, you know, with, with respect to... A grain-based diet or you know, excessive wheat especially uh, and how on one level it, it creates this neurological phenomena right um, there's another one which is really uh, potent and scary and useful because we can test for some of these things 
Um, so bacteria live and die depending on their natural growth cycle and how much you feed them. So a lot of people have cyclic episodes of if it's psoriasis or eczema or arthritis or tendonitis, carpal tunnel, and or psychological, neurological phenomena. And that cycle is determined by whichever bacteria has won the, the battle at get the food first and eats as much as it can, runs through its lifestyle, life uh, cycle. cycle, thank you, and dies. Now, the surface membrane of bacteria are, is a very hostile thing because it, you know, your immune system is always trying to take them out. So when that surface membrane of the bacteria explodes, it produces something called LPS, which is lipopolysaccharide, a very, very corrosive and invasive molecule, which leaves your gut, gets into your bloodstream, and causes a pro-inflammatory, uh, more hostile immune response wherever inflammation and your immune system are having an argument with your body and it gets into your blood-brain barrier. So when you have LPS, you know, from uh, cyclically overfeeding whichever bacteria you, you have in your body, and it's not, not always the same for everybody, that's the usually the incident cause of the actual trigger to the symptoms. So you have a person who's made the heroic distinction and, and decision to go gluten-free, uh, and hopefully even grain-free, uh, and they maybe have SIBO, bacterial overgrowth, and now you're effectively starving out the, the bacteria and doing less harm to your gut so your immune system is going to be more effective at getting rid of them. Throughout the corrective dying off process, you're still going to be having these huge explosions of lipopolysaccharide running through your system. So there's always these, uh, people call them healing reactions. Is that the same thing as a healing crisis? Uh, well, I mean, think, I think that's what people call it, yeah, like a healing crisis. Right. So it's it, sort of a trend in the 90s. Look, I've got a giant boil in my forehead. I must be having a healing crisis. My <laughs> cleanse is finally working. <laughs> and so if I'm going to put it into plain English, if I've got all this um, LPS, if I've got all this crap floating around in my body mm -hmm. and uh, I stop putting crap in, all of a sudden my body can get rid of that crap. Yeah. And that crap's going to start showing up. So yeah. I, I'm going to have um, psoriasis or dry, itchy skin, or in my case... Um, brain fog to the point where I can't even remember what I just said five minutes ago, let alone my own name, um, all these sorts of things. Yeah, and that, that's the tricky thing for people is, you know, they start going gluten-free, preferably grain-free, and they feel like they're not really getting better because we have these sort of cyclic die-offs. And um, it's, it's a fairly migratory uh, environment in terms of your small and large intestine because there's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of different unique life forms, and they're all competing with each other all of the time. Uh, we're just getting into a place now with uh, sort of the bench work research where uh, people doing their master's degree all over the world are now testing their poop every day to look at the actual complete uh, sort of microbiome or all the different genetic structures that are living within your, your, the tube of your gut or your, your uh, uh, GI tract. You know, and you, you look at them and they kind of put them in like rainbow colors. So you can say, well, I've got this many of this kind of bacteria, this kind of fungus, this kind of yeast or organism. Somebody down the hall could have a completely different looking rainbow of how many uh, of a certain population is big and how many of a certain population is small. I mean, this brings up the, I don't know, the weirdest probably and coolest thing that's going to come around the corner in medicine, which is, it comes down to the possibility that your best choice is a fecal transplant. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard of that, where they actually um, 
are looking for indigenous peoples. Um, I think it was in Africa somewhere. Uh, they're all over the world. I think the company's out of New Zealand, but they're traveling around everywhere trying to find as many, you know, hunting, gathering indigenous people. And it's like, well, we'll trade you beads for poo or something like that. And they're putting it in vats and they're trying to grow the most uh, uh, comprehensive or opulent, you know, variety of organisms uh, for the perfect fecal transplant. You know, and these business. are these are these are people who've never eaten a Twinkie, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or any other kind of. They've never eaten any shit, so therefore theirs must be awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So this is the the thing when it comes to going gluten free. I think that's the invitation for everyone to consider if you can succeed at that, then maybe the next thing is to go grain free, and again, all grains have these prolines in them, so it's not like you know, oh, it's just gluten. Gluten, I think, is. I don't know, the, the, the first uh, bandit in, in, in the village to really get labeled as such. Um, but it's a, just the beginning, I think, of a, of a paradigm shift around what our food supply kind of has always looked like and obviously needs to look like now. I mean, we're the sickest and most medicated population ever. Mm-hmm. And that's why people are listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> because they want to improve their health. Um, Live a life of abundant health. Yeah, yeah. And one more goofy thing. Um, it's just Mother Nature's kind of like you have to say, you're being mean. <laughs> so there's these things called uh, exomorphemes. Uh, so fun to get a new vocabulary. <laughs> uh, when you're eating a lot of things, especially wheat, which is especially high in these exomorphemes, you're now basically getting a structure into your brain that's an endorphin, which is addictive. And oh. I could have told you bread's addictive. Yeah, I, yeah, I know, but I'm just Dude, saying. I haven't eaten a regular <laughs> bread kind of meal or pizza or anything like that for over 20 years. And my body's still like, hey, man, why don't you go get a pizza? And I'm like, who said that? <laughs> <laughs> Looking down at my body. Yeah, I know it's addictive. Yeah, but I mean, it's crucially addictive for a lot of people, especially our, our children. Because mm-hmm. coming off of morphine is not an easy thing to do. And it's uh, in the body, the physiology, the whole gluten response mm-hmm. is it it's just like does it mimic morphine in well sense? an exomorphine is close enough of an endorphin to morphine to create the same addictive uh kind of clamp in your brain and it's like three four days go by most people that are trying to go gluten-free it, that that's when the, the nail biting starts mm-hmm. wow um okay so we've talked a little bit about symptoms and, and that sort of thing uh I have no idea. I, I can, let's let's pretend I don't know that I'm gluten intolerant or not. Mm-hmm. What are things that I can actually look for to help me identify? Because we we've come to the point right now where we know that it's something you should avoid. Yeah. Yeah. So what well, am I looking for? Best thing to do is to just go gluten free for a committed committed period of time, say a month, and just notice if suddenly there's a lot of things that are better. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of lab tests you can do to like figure out exactly what you're reacting to. If it's the uh, gliadin, if it's um, the glycophosphate, if it's uh, the LPS, or sort of things, and then you know you can rule out. Oh, well, obviously this is now a medical thing, but the symptoms are so vague and global in the sense of your whole body that to say, oh yeah, well if you've got you know. Uh, vitiligo or if you got Raynaud's syndrome you absolutely for sure you know have celiac disease I mean I think the the movement that's happening right now in clinical nutrition and functional medicine is it isn't about gluten 
right? It's about solubilin and gliadin and LPS and a whole bunch of other stuff, glycophosphate if it's not organic. Um, and it, it, and then there's the starch part, and, and then there's the fact that they're they're they're, they're addictive drugs, <laughs> and then there's all this other stuff, you know, which makes it again. If we go back to the beginning of the podcast. Going gluten-free is just going from one dangerous boat into a slightly more expensive dangerous boat. Whereas you're going grain-free, or at least really, really reducing your grains down to like maybe just you know organic, you know gluten-free or non-contaminated oats and some white rice cooked in fat. You know, for me that's like okay, that's that that would that would still probably be a working a working diet for a lot of people. Now, admittedly, I work with the most complex chronic degenerative autoimmune stuff that we we have on Earth, but. Um, working in, in that environment just gives me the perspective that if this is what we're doing to help those people, why wouldn't we just do that for everybody? I mean, it's not convenient, but if obviously getting rid of all of these uh, bandits in the building of your body is going to give your body a better chance to repair itself. You know, as they say, boo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and if we take it back to the previous podcast, I mean... We're talking about all the different hidden internal stressors that actually create the conditions for your adrenals and your brain to believe you're in danger. Running on the most dangerous food on Earth seems like the fastest way to tell your adrenal glands you're in danger. And that's going to cascade into a whole other arena of hurt. Yeah. <laughs> World so, of hurt. And then, so the, the, you know, the podcast being, should we all go gluten-free? Uh, yes. And then once you've figured that particular bandit out, move on to grain-free. So the uh, uh, that's that's the diagnosis and the treatment right there. <laughs> All in one thing. <laughs> Just <laughs> stop eating bread. Yeah. And then eventually, um, if you're going to have any kind of grains, make sure they're cooked in fat. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, the way, you know, if I have bread, um, I don't know if this makes any difference or not in terms of how it ends up inside me or in terms of the health. Uh, sprouted bread that's organic, uh, sprouted grains rather, instead of just whatever milled, you know, Wonder Bread white flour. Right. Um, and I usually have um, butter with a little bit of bread on top. <laughs> you know, it's like a, a quarter inch slab of butter uh, with uh, this little thin slice of bread that's underneath it. Well, if, if we were to have a show logo image for this particular podcast, it should be a, a slice of butter with bread on it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I find that um, if I do that, since so since I started going gluten-free or, or really paying attention to the whole idea of being gluten-free, I mean, I've been doing that for years, but going grain-free, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I can eat bread again. All of a sudden it's like, hey, wait a minute. I just ate two pieces of bread and I can still remember my name. What's going on here? Now, mind you, I'll do it once a week, once every two weeks. Mm -hmm. It's still not an everyday thing. Much to my body's dismay, there are some times when I say, I'd love to eat a loaf of bread, but that's because I've got some other stuff going on in my life, <laughs> not because I'm actually hungry. Bread's always been that sort of go-to comfort food. Well, I mean, morphine's one of the best painkillers out there. <laughs> hmm, right. Um, is there more that you want to say about gluten? Well, I mean, I think if I was to go any deeper into it, it would be more for clinicians, you know. But I think with respect to um, most of our listeners, the idea is just, get a common sense sense that um, gluten-free is a distraction take it take it farther understand the mechanisms and uh, do the experiment you know if you have kids and they're you know not turning out to be the people you want them to, to live with make it a household thing for a while 
and see what happens. You know, and I think I want to add this very quickly is, so there's the, the antagonistic things like the gliadin and zonulin and LPS and stuff that happen from, from eating that stuff. And then there's the stuff that happens from the starch, which is just really dense sugar. And then there's sugar. So here we are, it's mid-October and Halloween is coming. So I have to start rearranging my clinical schedule because within seven to 10 days of uh, post-Halloween, I'm gonna have a pediatric clinic for about a month because there are all these kids that are living on a high grain diet and then all the sugar that they have around Halloween have just made the worst, uh, called the perfect storm for bacterial overgrowth in the gut, which over a period of days turns into any kind of flu or virus looking like thing. I mean, it'd be interesting to look at the number of antibiotics sold uh, throughout you know, early to mid-November in the developed world for kids. You think there'd be a, a direct correlation between that illness as it shows up in November and Halloween. Yeah, because we eat so much sugar, mm. plus, plus the bread, plus the everything else, and the sugar is gonna feed the bacteria. And because a lot of the candies have the sugar embedded into a chewy starch or something like that, again, the sugar gets dragged farther and farther down your GI tract before it gets absorbed, feeding more and more irritating little bandits. And uh, I mean, I've been doing medicine for 20 years as of April, and every November, literally, I'm like, okay, it's going to be kids, 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 because they all uh, are, have been eating candy since October the 30th and or earlier. And the bacteria will feed on it. They overgrow. And it takes about four to seven days for your immune system to really launch a, a, an organized attack, which is actually what we call the infection. The infection's already there. It's when your immune system actually gets organized enough to start to take out the bad guys. And again, bacteria immune system, dead bacteria, LPS, the lipopolysaccharide, everywhere, kids in school running amok, <laughs> kids at home being really, really grumpy demons, <coughs> kids with you know, digestive problems suddenly worse, kids with eczema suddenly worse, kids with uh, um, any number of just chronic sniffly things suddenly worse. Mm-hmm. We should be the Glenda selling Kleenexes in November. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It's a bit more environmental, sell hankies. It's hankies, there you go. But, but again, the only reason I bring this up is to try and impart some imagery to people listening that um, don't do it Halloween. <laughs> Get better treats. More importantly, look at the whole system that's going on with respect to the, the pressure of grains in your diet, plus things like sugar, because they add up. You know, It's an accumulative assault or insult to the volume. Yeah, one of the biggest motivations for me to stop eating bread and to go grain-free um, is being really uh, centered, grounded, level-headed, um, not as flighty or emotional. Um, I don't know that I've ever really been someone to fly off the handle, uh, but I notice that when I'm more ready, or have been in the past, um, that's been more the case. It's like bread is dead. Bread is just like bad news. Can't think, can't add, don't talk to me. Um, I'm itchy, go away, <laughs> I'm all the above. Yeah, so again, if question being, should everyone gluten-free? Yes, 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 and then tighten up your willpower and go grain-free. Awesome. Put me um, out of work, put me out of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's your job, folks. Put, put uh, Michael Smith out of work. Uh, you've been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Should everyone go gluten-free? And today's answer is a resounding yes. Um, I'm Anthony Senna. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And you can follow us on iTunes. You can give us comments on 
Facebook, on Podbean, Stitcher. Yeah, and if you're happen if you happen to be someone who's enjoying our podcasts, thank you so much for listening and send your feedback, your comments and questions in any way that you can. But if you want to do something that would help the show get out there for more people, um, which is why we're doing this, take the three or four minutes it takes to go on either iTunes or Stitcher and whatever podcast you've listened to, take a moment and write a review. I would love to know how to you know respond to your needs better, answer your questions, uh, and uh, if you have a comment that's going to help us improve the show, great. Because um, yeah, people don't actually see the podcast until we get a certain number of reviews. So it's just one of the fun rules of, of having a podcast actually appear on the, the menu of say Stitcher or iTunes. So there you go, a little bit of podcast one hundred and one. Yeah, if you are enjoying the show, please, please, please. Help us keep it going and keep us inspired by writing reviews so that it keeps working. That's a, that's a healthy prescription. <laughs> can, can I say that? <laughs> uh, Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Cook well, eat well, and be well. See you next time. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio. 